Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we look at the great forces, ideas and events that created the world in which we live today and what that means for the future. This week we're talking about the war in Ukraine. As we record this episode, the Russian winter offensive appears to have petered out without much to show for it. And now the world's attention is turning to Ukraine's expected counterattack. A dozen or so Ukrainian brigades are waiting for the order to push east, most of whom are now equipped and trained by the West. Meanwhile, China is offering to act as a peace broker in Ukraine. Late last month, for the first time, Chinese President Xi Jinping called Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, to discuss what was happening with the war. Today, we're not going to debate the likelihood of a Ukrainian breakthrough or about how the war will end. Instead, we're going to focus on one big question. How has the war in Ukraine changed the world? After months of preparations, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. The enemy has marked me down as number one target. They want to destroy Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state. The scenes unfolding in the streets and fields of Ukraine are nothing short of a tragedy. Brave young soldiers and innocent civilians are being cut down. Tanks are rumbling through towns and cities, missiles raining indiscriminately from the skies. During the past few months, I have to say that all of us were very impressed by the reaction and the resistance of the Korean people. Mr. Zelensky is facing down a nuclear power. We are all here. Our soldiers are here. The citizens of our country are here. We are all here protecting our independence, our country. The people of the United Kingdom stand with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in the face of this unjustifiable assault on your homeland. Obviously, what we can hear articulated in the clips that we've just listened to is the shock of what happened on the 24th of February of last year. And a few days after the invasion, as we know, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz stood up in front of the German Parliament and proclaimed that we were living in new times and new era, Zeitenwender, the German word for that. Do you think, Tom, that Europe did dramatically change on the 24th of February last year or was part of the shock to our complacency because we didn't actually understand the Europe in which we were living in before? Absolutely the latter, Helen. I think... The interesting thing, the most interesting thing, is how much Europe has not changed since the invasion. In a sense, the status quo, I think, has been reinforced more than anything. You can see that Europe needs to change. You can see that it needs to arm itself more than it has. You can see that America needs to spend more of its attention on China and the Asia-Pacific region. And yet we are exactly where we were. Europe is completely dependent on the United States, more so than it's ever been. Ukraine probably wouldn't still be an independent country without US military support. Ukraine exists in a geopolitical limbo, the same geopolitical limbo it's been really since 2008, and George Bush offering a kind of half guarantee or wanting to guarantee Ukraine's 
or trying to give Ukraine membership of NATO, but being rejected by the French. And you can see it's been a problem since 2008. I was speaking to a senior official just today, actually, and he mentioned to me, he said, you've got the four major powers in the West, and they're all kidding themselves. They're still kidding themselves. So you have the Americans want to focus on China and the home economy, but they can't. France wants EU to have strategic autonomy, and it can't. Germans just want to be left alone, and they can't. And Britain wants to turn its attention to the Indo-Pacific, and Britain can't. Because we're all dragged into this reality that is the European security disorder, and that hasn't changed. So what then would you say were the origins of that? If we shouldn't have been shocked at what happened... Is there a continuous story that runs from the failure to give Ukraine full NATO membership as Ukrainian government and, considerable extent, the Americans wanted to in 2008? And if so, does that mean that NATO bears some responsibility for not sufficiently defending Ukraine, even though Ukraine wasn't a member and NATO didn't actually have any obligation? If we think that nothing has changed, what's interesting here, Tom, is, is on that account, there is a very clear responsibility that falls on the Western states for failing to deter Russia from its invasion of Ukraine. That raises some quite difficult questions though, doesn't it? Because if we think that there was a way of defending Ukraine, including perhaps taking it into NATO in 2008, then that might be seen from the Russian point of view as an actual pretext for an earlier invasion. Yeah of Ukraine. So is the problem here that there was actually no real way of resolving the security predicament that Ukraine was in? And that's what we should have understood before the the 24th of February of last year, and that we should have understood that in that context, that Putin was quite capable of launching the outright war in which he did to try to take advantage of that situation. Yeah, we should have realised this since he invaded Georgia. It seems to me that we entered into the worst of all worlds where you raise concerns in Moscow about the West's intentions with Ukraine, but then you don't actually offer any guarantees of their security. Like you have to pick one or the other, don't you, to some extent. I know there's strategic ambiguity over Taiwan, and we're going to come to that in a later episode, and that has to some extent served the Western interest and Taiwanese interest. But for Ukraine, it clearly didn't serve their interest to have this partial guarantee that nobody quite understood what it was. And how then do we think about the European Union's role in this? Because obviously the thing that did change after 2008 was negotiations began for Ukraine to have associate membership of the European Union. And that was what was being pursued in the build-up to the Crimea crisis of 2014. So it was when the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, turned away from the agreement that his own government had reached with the EU about associate membership and said, no, actually, I'll take the financial package that's on offer for from Moscow, that people came out in the streets and the events that led up to his removal from power and then Russia annexing uh, Crimea took place. Because one way of looking at that would be to say that, look, the EU was taking over responsibility from NATO because it was a step too far to give Ukraine NATO membership. So let's take it into the EU. Let's try and, in some sense, to protect Ukraine economically. Then you could say that doesn't work because that's no kind of deterrent 
to a power like Russia. Yeah, the EU is trying to be a sort of geopolitical force, but without any security backing, or it outsources its security to the United States or to, to NATO. And right now, you're in this position where Macron is talking about EU strategic autonomy. But I think somebody was telling me today that 80% of the NATO budget now comes from outside the EU. It comes from the US, UK, Norway, Turkey. You have these two different bodies and they're not aligned. And so you then, they're not talking to each other, it seems to me. In a certain fashion, you've got America pursuing one set of goals and they're different from the EU. And in some ways, the EU has been more realistic. Merkel and the French in 2008 hard-headed and ruthless about the question, whereas then you have Bush really going for it. What did he call it? A kind of freedom agenda and trying to get Georgia and Ukraine in. So there is a contradiction. There is not a cohesion in the West, I think. Although I think we assume there is a cohesion about the West, but there's not. If we just press this thought a little bit further, was there a way actually of having a coherent policy towards Ukraine's independence? Because obviously, in part, Ukraine's independence was compromised from the beginning. So going back to the 1990s, because Ukraine had to give or decided to give, agreed to give Russia some military rights yeah. in Crimea as part of the 1997 treaty that effectively guaranteed Ukraine's independence. In some sense, makes it quite difficult for there to be a NATO solution to yeah. the problem because you're always going to press on some lines that were going to be very difficult for Russia. And yet at the same time, there wasn't any way in which there could be an EU solution to the problem because the only real way in which the EU can deal with its neighbours to the east is economically and not through any kind of military commitments because it simply doesn't have the, the geopolitical power to do that. But what I'm not so clear of is where the coherent path that could have been taken actually was because it just looks in a way like a situation that is ultimately dependent upon Russia showing restraint right. towards Ukraine and in the end we know that what happened was that restraint broke down and that Putin decided that all out war was an option now you can argue that since then he's had to drop that because he's moved to a more limited war than the one that which he embarked upon um, on the uh, the 24th of uh, February last year. But isn't it possible that actually there was no good path? Yeah, I suppose that's geopolitics in a way. That's the skill in the game is to think, OK, there, there is no good solution here. You have to find your way to the least worst solution. I was reading the biography of Richard Holbrook earlier today or rereading re it by my old colleague at The Atlantic, George Packer. And he recounts these moments in history when the Americans are making pretty ruthless moral judgments to support the Khmer Rouge because they've decided that it's in their interest to try and split China from Russia. And that helps that because the Khmer Rouge are a Chinese ally rather than a Russian ally. Richard Holbrook says that's the worst thing that he had to do in his entire career was to vote for Cambodia's accession to the UN. I forget which body. He felt disgusted by it, but yes, he did it. But that was part of this overall package where you have to choose between evils. Clearly, the Russian invasion is Russia's fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. He is culpable. But is there just not a, a sort of base level naivety, some kind of 
combination of a post-Second World War world in which we think all guarantees, security guarantees, are absolute. We've forgotten that there is a world that exists where there are small-scale wars that break out. And then a post-Cold War attitude where we've forgotten that the world is pretty gruesome and nasty. Yeah, I think there's several things here. I do think in the end that there is a failure of deterrence in yeah. the sense that there wasn't sufficient conviction in Moscow that a serious response would be made by the United States and European states yeah. in order to deter Putin from taking the decision in which he did. I think the country where we should really think through the question that you've just asked about unpalatable options is really Germany. Right. We start here by saying that it was the German Chancellor who said, we are living in new times. And I think that what is true for Germany, the shock was so deep that in the sense of a collective understanding in Germany of what the questions were that Germany faced geopolitically, that the world did change but then, dramatically. Uh, and he did obviously make those promises that German policy was going to change. He said, we're going to end our energy dependency yeah. on Russia. We're going to create a new really quite large fund for defence expenditure. We're going to build some liquid natural gas ports. Now, I think you can say that German policy hasn't changed anywhere near as much as might have been expected from what he said. The commitments he made in that yeah. speech, nonetheless, we can still think that's true and still think that there was a, a really sizable psychic shock that the German political class experienced. And in that sense, if the whole German political class's mindset to what Europe is now is not what it was, then Europe has changed because Germany is the most important state on the continent. But I do wonder how much it has actually changed. Macron visiting Beijing and you see ultimately the German economy, the interests there are going to be dependent on selling goods to China. So how much fundamentally have they shifted there? I think we have to separate out here the question of have they changed their position in relation to China? From Russia. From have they changed their position in relation to Russia? And I think that what we can see in regard to Russia on the corporate side, so German companies, the yeah. ones that were in some sense deep, quite deeply entrenched in Russia, a lot of them are still there and not a great deal perhaps has changed. On the other hand, then in good part because Russia effectively declared an energy war on Germany by shutting down the sale of gas to Germany through the Nord Stream, through Nord Stream 1 pipeline and the Amal Europe pipeline, the one that runs through, ran, I should say, through Poland, then Germany has had to do a huge volt vast on its gas policy. It's now got to find gas supplies from other parts of the world and import it by sea and not through these pipelines. So I think that there's a very strange disjuncture between the ways in which Germany has changed because it's absolutely had no choice yeah. and the ways in which Germany has changed because German politicians have had their complacency destroyed and then still trying to hold on to certain things about the old way of doing it. And we'll come on to the China question, obviously, but we can see that, I think, most clearly in China, which would be to say, look, these economic dependencies that we have on foreign markets and foreign trade come first. But let's go back to your thought about strategic autonomy yeah. for Europe. Macron, obviously, was very keen on this before the war. He's very keen on this still. The French leaders are always keen yeah, on this, right? Keen on this. Or has the war changed this in Europe so that the prospects for strategic autonomy 
are now worse than that they were before, or have they created the conditions in which Macron might be able to succeed? They're weirdly both. I don't think they will succeed. I think if they've got worse for Macron in that Europe is so clearly dependent on the US, and if you're a Baltic country, if you're Poland, you have become more pro-American. You supported Trump base or whatever it was called when he floated the idea of moving uh, American troops from Germany into Poland. Of course you did. NATO is currently busy working on plans of how would you respond or how would we respond if a similar-sized Russian force emerged on the Baltic border in the east as they did in Ukraine. And these are the direct consequences. Nobody wants to rely on a an EU army that doesn't exist or EU strategic autonomy that doesn't exist. They want Britain involved as much as they can. They want NATO empowered. So Macron's hopes are dashed. But at the same time, there is clearly a logic to, I call it sort of Euro-Gaulism, in that, as we said at the start, America will have to disengage to some extent. Somebody, again, from described this as, like Brazil is always the emerging country in the world and always will be. America is always disengaging for Europe and always will be. So maybe it never will leave Europe. Maybe it's just too attached to it. I think we should come to the China question in a moment, but just one last thought before we do, and that is that if we think about it just as a NATO question, so that we started with the misalignment between the EU and NATO, that what we've seen as a result of the war is a Russia's war is that NATO has a new member, yeah, Finland, and another would-be member, yeah, in Sweden. Sweden, and we've seen that Turkey, who was a very awkward NATO member before the war began, indeed, if you go back to Macron's comments before the war about NATO being brain dead, or the brain death of NATO, yes. I think it was, yeah. he was talking about that in the context of Turkish policy in Syria. Yes. And now Turkey has shown during the course of this war that it's fairly pivotal to the ability to support Ukraine, even though Turkey is also a state that hasn't put any sanctions. We, we again come back to this point of cultural choices that you face. Yes. Turkey is slight, a backsliding democracy. But at the same time as well, Turkey is the one who's been able to secure Ukraine's ability to export food abroad yep. by negotiating an agreement that with Putin that ports will be open in order for ships to, to to go through the Black Sea. So all these things are ways in which NATO, I think, is entrenched. Yeah, against the, the Macron vision. And at the same time, the EU has offered candidate status to Ukraine and Georgia without resolving that question of, well, yeah. logic, particularly if we learn our lessons from the past, would say, well, Ukraine and Georgia then need to be in NATO. Yeah. That's not really on the table I wanted I wanted to put like quote marks around candidate status. You know, wasn't yeah. Turkey given it was. candidate status, <laughs> and that's never going to happen. But just as you were talking, something popped into my head when I was researching a book that I'm working on about Britain's relationship with Europe. One of the pivotal moments came really early on, where a proposal for the European Defence Community ended up being vetoed by the French National Assembly in a sort of fit of sort of patriotic fervor in, in France. And they broke into the Marseillaise as they voted it down. And Jean Monnet was in the, in the audience watching these proceedings unfurl. And that really was a moment where it could have all 
fallen apart and Britain thought that it was going to be able to get involved again in, on a more sort of equal basis before the momentum picked up again and, and we ended up where we did. But nothing ever came of the European defence community. That's always been the most difficult. I just said what happened was West Germany was incorporated into NATO, which is probably yeah. what the Americans One. would have preferred in the beginning. But obviously that was a time in which the Americans were firmly committed to the defence of Western Europe. Yeah, I think you could say it was the most important part of the world strategically for the United States. We know that's no longer the case. American attention is now in the Pacific, or it would seem to be. It would seem to be. Let's talk about that and what the war means for American strategic priorities after the break. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All eyes on Moscow today as President Xi Jinping of China arrives for a three-day state visit. It's the Chinese leader's first trip to Russia since the start of the war. In Ukraine, President Putin has said that Russia and China are both fighting common threats. Images tonight, you can see Xi given the red carpet treatment serenaded by a military band in Russia. Vladimir Putin then welcoming his, quote, dear friend of the Kremlin. The two meeting for more than four hours. And of course, the question remains tonight, will China help Russia in this war in Ukraine? You know, this visit was announced on Friday. But this is not a partnership of equals. This is a partnership where Russia is very much the junior partner, isolated on the world stage. And of course, this is also a moment where both leaders uh, want to show, and especially Xi Jinping, want to show that they are a, a peace broker uh, in terms of the Ukraine war. So those were quite sobering clips, really. Evidence, I think, of a hardening axis between Russia and China. Is that what we're seeing here, Helen? I think so. There was quite a lot of talk at some points during last year of the Chinese being very frustrated with the Russians, particularly when the war didn't end quickly. Yeah. But I think that we've seen China move closer, perhaps, back to Russia again since at least the autumn. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting in the last month or so is the way in which... China has taken the initiative on the issue of Iran. Now, it's mm. clear that Russia-Iran relations have been strong for a while and that during the course of the war, Iran's been selling weapons to Russia. So this is definitely... Oh, yeah, a, cheap drones. Yeah, definitely a relationship that's hardened yeah. as a result of the war. But I think the significant thing that's happened in pretty recently is China mm. negotiating... A rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. And that in the next few days, probably by the time you hear this podcast, it might well have happened, there will be diplomatic relations again between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, you might have thought that this was something that Russia could bring about because it had moved closer both to Iran, I'd say, from 2015, probably, from the point in which it intervened in Syria to Saudi Arabia from the next year when it formed OPEC. Plus, it's actually the Chinese 
that have done this. And if Russia has good relations with Iran, reasonable relations with Saudi Arabia, China can act to bring those together. It's possible that we're not just seeing China-Russia hardening axis, but something broader than that. And which is a real, I think, defeat on Iran for the Biden administration, because remember that Biden came in very determined to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal, rapprochement with Iran, or some kind of rapprochement with Iran, was on Biden's agenda. It does sometimes seem to me that we have a war on European soil that is a proxy war. We're not used to that. A proxy war between China and the United States. Obviously, it's a hot war as well between Russia and Ukraine. That's quite a sobering thought. That that proxy wars used to happen to other people, and now they happen here. Yeah, I think this is a complicated question because obviously there's an issue of there being a geopolitical competition between the United States and Russia going on as part of the war in Ukraine. And part of that, I think, is about the Black Sea. And that's going on, as well as the fact that Ukraine is fighting for its national sovereignty against Russia. Clearly, I think that Russia's struggles during the war have in some sense encouraged China to project its power more into Central Asia, some of those former Soviet states, which Russia might have thought of in some sense as its backyard, and now China trying to exercise more influence, I think, probably successfully. But then if China becomes an attempted peace broker over a war in Europe, that would be, which I think is what you're getting at, an extraordinary development, because then we would have China improving relations between long-standing rivals Which one it wants. in the Middle East and then try and do this in Europe. Now, we might be quite sceptical about China's ability to do that, but the very fact that Xi Jinping's had the idea and that not only the idea that he could, but actually made it pretty public and invested some credibility in that's, by any historical standards, I think an astonishing development. Yeah. Oddly, as a side point, I went on a holiday to Kyrgyzstan with some friends in Central Asia and you could see the Chinese influence. This was a Russian-speaking place with a Russian base. And yet you saw signs being put up by Turkey seeking kind of influence over what it saw as its ethnic brothers or kin. And China, it was the economic power. It was everywhere. So you can see these things when you travel in the world. But it also raises the question, doesn't it, is, is what would the Biden administration think about China having all about Chinese ambitions to act as a peace broker. If Xi Jinping can put pressure on Putin to retreat, yeah, wouldn't that be to Washington's advantage? I think one of the things that's pretty interesting about what's happened during the course of the war is that I'd say from probably about late March, early April last year through to sometime in the autumn, the late autumn, the Americans... The Biden administration, I should say, looked like they thought there was an opportunity to inflict a fairly strategic blow on Russia, Yeah, really to push Russia back. And part of that was the use of the financial sanctions, but it was also just the military resilience of Ukraine and the fact that, well, late summer was it, early autumn, significant territorial gains were made by Ukraine. But that's rather fallen I'd say that there is a reasonable case to say that Russia has been badly damaged by this war and its power has been set back. And I guess the optimistic case for this is that 
for a relatively marginal cost for, for America, they've managed to inflict a fairly serious blow on Russia militarily, which they may take years to recover from. So in one sense, they've, they've weakened one strategic competitor, even if they haven't necessarily weakened their principal strategic competitor. So m- maybe they take that as a win. I think it depends, though, still, doesn't it, on how the war ends in this context, because I'm not sure, for instance, if Russia still held on to quite a lot of that territory that it's acquired around the North Black Sea coast of Ukraine, that that would really be considered a strategic defeat for Russia. It would have been a partial success that came at a very high at a very high cost priced militarily. But at the same time is that if territorial gains are made by Russia, we'd be hard pushed to say that it was just a significant strategic setback. And I think the other thing that's become clear is that while the financial sanctions hurt and the energy sanctions, I think, have had less effect, but Russia, at least in embargoing the sale of gas to European countries effectively, has had to find new markets. It's had to sell oil at lower prices to China and India, is we seeing more reinvention of Russia's energy position than really severe battering. Is that of just the Chinese energy? taking over in a way? They're, Russia is becoming more of a client state. Some people were talking about at the worst case scenario for the West is that Russia becomes like a giant North Korea, a client state of the Chinese. It sends its highly militarized nuclear power on Europe's doorstep. I think that this is a complicated question to to think about because if it were the case that China were going to become a straightforward dominant power over Russia, then it would turn a lot of history upside down in the sense that you don't really expect the state, however large it is like China, that has large-scale foreign energy dependency yeah. to be the state that's got power over the one that is the energy exporter yeah and i think that russia still has advantages in the russia china relationship that might not have been the case if the americans had really succeeded in imposing severe damage on its energy exporting capacity but i don't think that that is what has happened but we should get back to the question of like how the americans then are thinking about ukraine in relation to the way they see their policy towards China. Because obviously, during the course of the war, really I would suggest, think independently of what's been going on in Ukraine, US-China relations have deteriorated. They've deteriorated over Taiwan, and they've deteriorated over the tech and trade war, not least because of the ban that the Biden administration has imposed on the sale of semiconductor chips to China. So if things are getting more difficult are more tense between the US and China and the US wants to be more confrontational to China. Has Ukraine, given the difficulty of inflicting a real strategic blow on Russia, just become a distraction? Yeah, I think there is a reasonable case to say there are trade-offs in foreign policy. There is no easy hit. There is the optimistic argument, which has some merit, I think, that the two theatres are linked, but Ukraine, and what we're talking about here really is Taiwan and containing Chinese power in the Indo-Pacific and ensuring American supremacy there. 
So those two theatres are linked and the argument goes, you weaken Russia in one side, you can walk and chew gum is the phrase in, in, in Washington, they can do both. They're still powerful enough to do both. But I do think there is a slight naivety there that there has to be trade-offs. America has sent, I think, 20,000 more troops into Europe. It is spending a lot of money arming Ukraine. It's reinvigorated its military industrial base in the United States to some extent, so that may help in the coming confrontation with China. But there has to be some costs for America. And ultimately, there is an imbalance in the West. There just clearly is. Europe, for all of its talk of changing, the world-changing since the war has not really stepped up to the plate. It's not dramatically increased its defense spending. I was speaking to somebody in NATO today and, and they were saying, look, you're not talking about even Cold War levels of funding that are necessary for NATO to hold Russia at bay. You're talking really 2 to 3% of GDP on defense rather than the sort of below 2% that most countries are at now, let alone the 5% that I think we had during the Cold War. And yet we're not getting there. So we still haven't got to a position where there is a better balance. Partly, America needs to take some responsibility for this. It is not prepared to give up its power and influence in Europe. And also, it's not a great deal for countries like Britain to be told, now that you've left the EU and you're looking to try and make more money in the Indo-Pacific and you're trying to be an Indo-Pacific power and you've joined CPTPP, the trade deal, that suddenly you have to spend a lot more money in your own European power and you've just got to concentrate on Russia. That's not a, a great sales pitch to Britain at the moment. Now, obviously, the question for the European governments of what the American attitude towards China, approach towards China is pretty complicated, isn't it? Because yeah. none of them, I think, want to decouple from China. Officially, American policy isn't decoupling from China. Janet Yellen, the American Treasury Secretary, in the speech that she gave, I think it was, last month, was quite explicit that the preference is to what might be called de-risk. That's also the EU position. Yeah, right. rather than... But I think she sees through that. Yeah, risk. rather than decouple. But I think it's a lot easier for the Americans to, at least at government level, to contemplate some kind of detachment than it is for European governments to contemplate that. I think in terms of American corporations, it's rather different than that. It's not really clear what Apple does if they're, yeah. if they're supposed to decouple. But the way in which the war in Ukraine has changed some of these geopolitical dynamics around the relationship between the US-China question, the US-Europe question, and then the Russia-China question is the position of India. I think we should mm. just say something. Yeah about that because obviously if you look at US positioning before the war it was very much trying to get India into some kind of relatively at least common position yeah. on the China that's that in some sense the whole language of the Indo-Pacific was set up around that yeah but what we've seen during the course of the war and in good part I would suggest as a consequence of the war is India moving a bit closer to Russia because there's an opportunity to buy much cheaper oil from yeah. Russia that European countries didn't want to buy. And that raises the question is, is, where does India fit into this? If on the energy side of it, it's looking like it's a bit more in the Russia, China, 
Iran block. Back but on the security side of it, then it's got very real concerns about security in relation to um, China and the Americans want them, in some sense, I'd say, as part of the containment of China. It feels like from, from a European perspective, it's a kind of careful what you wish for world in which most of Europe has been talking about strategic autonomy or a multipolar world in which they are a, what, what would they call it, a regulatory superpower if such a thing exists. But actually the multipolar world that is emerging doesn't look very good for Europe. It looks pretty bad. We get very expensive energy. Other places get cheap energy. We are no less dependent on the United States than we were. In fact, we're more dependent where energy is concerned because now more European countries are buying gas from American right. shell companies than was previously the case. Yeah, so actually it, it's not working out very well for, when I say Europe, Britain as well. And the multipolar aspect of the world is really we're talking about elsewhere, outside of Europe. It's other powers emerging and using their place in between the two great powers to try and to win back some some autonomy to some to a certain extent maybe we should just finish by opening a, a quite big question that maybe we'll uh, return to in future episodes is how do we get here from like the 1970s because if we go back to the the 70s american policy when the world was pretty complicated geopolitically for the 1970s including obviously the american position in vietnam was to try and split Right, China and Russia apart from each other. And as we heard with where we started, what we're seeing is a hardening of that relationship between China and Russia and the Americans not really being able to penetrate through it and now having to deal with this complication of India yeah. in relation to it. Is this kind of belated American recognition of just how much the world has changed since the 1970s or... Are they, in some sense, trying to use that playbook of the 1970s? Don't you think back to yeah. Trump when you think about this and in those debates where he'd, he'd point at Hillary Clinton and say, China stole your lunch, or when he was at the UN and he was saying to the Germans that you're completely dependent on this power that you're asking us to defend you from, and it was met with mocking kind of laughter, but yet it seems true now. Not only a few years later, that same pipeline has been blown up by somebody we, we still don't know who. I wonder when I look back and you think of Romney saying that Russia was the West's principal strategic threat, Clinton really still following that playbook, that actually the Americans were slow to see this emerging axis. And maybe we all were slow to see this emerging axis. And that's where we could be a bit more critical. I was speaking to somebody today who was saying the Americans were still trying, actually, to drive a wedge. They called it a wedge drive between Russia and China. As as recently as 2021, Biden met Putin in Geneva and was trying to pull them apart a bit, but just really hasn't been successful at all. We're going to come back to this, obviously, I think, in, in future episodes. One of the reasons why this is so different is that these aren't just powers that want a more multipolar world because them wanting a more multipolar world certainly doesn't necessarily give it them, but they are what we might think of as revisionist powers in the sense is they wanted territorial changes. Yeah, Russia wanted at least part of Ukraine to be Russian, maybe quite a lot of it, and China ultimately 
wants Taiwan to be part of. This is China history coming back. Yeah, and that history just didn't finish in terms of some quite literal sense, the geopolitical map, because Western countries decided in 1989 or 1991 that history had finished. We're on history right now. And the history of where these powerful states, where they territorially end, is being politically contested. And that's causing quite a lot of difficulty, not just in Europe, I think, but for the United States too. And the question is, is the United States in the end ultimately going to impose the kind of destruction on the world economy that would ensue between the US and China war in order to defend Taiwan? Yeah. Can we put sanctions on Russia and China at the same Mm -hmm. time? And that's where the sort of divided effort, we come back to the divided effort. I'll leave it on a quote from somebody, a senior official talking to me today. They said that these wars were like a belch from deep, dark recesses of history. And that kind of feels about right. It does. We hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as we did talking about it. And if you did, please subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at These Times Pod, capital T for these, capital T for times, capital P for pod. And if you've got any questions, you can send them to us at these times at unheard.com and we'll try to answer them in a future episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.